The Athletic Podcast Network is supported by the Quip Electric Toothbrush, known as the iPhone of toothbrushes. Engineered by industrial designers, Quip is sleek and simple. Time magazine named Quip one of their best inventions of the year. GQ declared it one of the best grooming products on the market, and Oprah put it on her prestigious O-list. Join millions of brushers who use Quip to make their mouths happy and healthy. Get your first refill free at getquip.com slash listen. That's getquip, Q-U-I-P dot com slash listen. And welcome to another episode of Hoops Adjacent. I am David Aldridge here with my man, Waz Lambre. Waz, what is up, sir? I'm good, DA. Can't complain. Uh, just came off of the longest birthday week of my life, but uh, you know I somehow survived it, and I'm ready to rock and roll. Happy birthday to you, man! I just celebrated one of those myself this week, so you know when you get through great, great minds thinking alike. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to have on Bomani Jones, the great, great Bomani Jones from High Noon on ESPN, from the Right Time podcast. Uh, he is a one man media market mogul uh, over there bringing the smart commentary and uh, driving haters crazy. Uh, but let's start real quick, Waz, with the week that was and still in the NBA after the trade deadline. I think people remain fascinated by the Rockets or the pocket Rockets, as we're calling them, uh, which, I, which I think is kind of BS to start off with. Because it, it's like a marketing gimmick. Like, we don't have a guy under six, six, over 6'6 six, six on our team. Like, who cares? 6'6", six, 6'7", six, 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 who cares? Nobody cares. You know, like, it's just, you know, is there a real, is there a, is there a discernible difference between Robert Covington guarding somebody in today's NBA and Tyson Chandler? You know what I mean? There really isn't. You know, the league is, everybody's downsizing, so it doesn't really matter. But it's kind of, it's a cute gimmick. I understand. Um, so, since they've gone to that lineup, they're two and two, uh, full time. Um, uh, they beat the Lakers in the in the first game um, in a big win, national TV game in LA. They beat the Celtics on Tuesday night, as we taped this on Wednesday, uh, in another good win. Two really good teams, but they got the doors blown off in Phoenix by by a better Phoenix team in terms of they're they're improving, but they're not a good team yet. You know what I mean? They're getting better. Yeah, uh, and they also lost a, a, a buzzer beater at home to Utah. So, what do we make of of this of this uh, of this? I guess new look for the Rockets so far. It's interesting. Um, I was at the Laker game last Thursday, which was the first game they whipped it out, and I think a lot of that was like an initial shock, and from with the, not the shock, but the Lakers were kind of just confused about how they should go about attacking the Rockets. Mm. And at the same time, I think the Rockets were legitimately playing hard. Yeah. I think this, I think like this new stuff gave them a jolt. I think what sticks out to me mostly is that Westbrook is attacking. He's beating guys off the dribble and he's finishing. He's it's not shooting those, threes. And he's, yeah, he's completely cut that out of his, his diet. And it's one yeah. of those things where Westbrook's quickness and explosion um, – used to be like a misnomer that he was like this great finisher. He's always been like a mediocre finisher mm -hmm. when he actually got to the cup. Mm -hmm. um, on the, in his MVP year, he was getting to the line a lot, which, which matters, but he's never been this incredible, like, you know, when I think about finishers, I think about somebody like Tony Parker, who's leading the league in, mm -hmm. in paint points, you know, in right, his prime, right. or of course, a LeBron James and, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, Westbrook was never that great of a finisher, but he's finishing now, and he's playing, like, some of the best basketball, literally, of his career for the last six weeks. Um, yeah. I think that's the main difference. But I think for right now, they're playing much harder than they were. And, you know, you go from Clint Capella being hurt and being ineffective when he actually did play to getting somebody for him who's actually going to, He's actually spacing the floor and helping your offense in crazy ways. And, you know, he's one of the top 10 defenders in the entire NBA. That goes beyond position. Like, the guy is one of the transformational defenders. So, of course, I think they upgraded in that sense. Capella wasn't really playing. And when he was, he was hurt, so he's ineffective. 
But long term, I don't see it. Here's why I think this might work. It surprised myself when I started thinking about this. Initially, I wanted to dismiss it. The reason why I think it could work, and I'm talking about in the playoffs, obviously. I don't care about the regular season. People who don't see this, who only see the Rockets twice, you know, from the East, or they've already played them twice, and it's a completely different new lineup or, or attack uh, mode to try and game plan against you haven't had a chance to practice against the Rockets are going to win a lot of games in the regular season because of that. Okay. Just because they're talented and they've got very skilled guys like Harden and Westbrook uh, and Covington, they're going to win a lot of games because people just haven't had a chance to practice against this. Right. So, but even in the playoffs was, I think this has a chance to work and I'll tell you why, because you have days off in the playoffs. Yep. And that's where I think the Rockets can make this work. It's very similar to what I saw during the baseball playoffs where the Washington Nationals had maybe the worst bullpen in the history of baseball, right, for a team that was in the postseason. They had one of the worst bullpens statistically ever. So what did they do? They said – well, we're just not going to pitch them very much. <laughs> we're going to limit. We're going to limit their innings as much as possible, and we're going to use our starters as our relievers. So they used Scherzer, they used um, they used uh, Strasburg, and they used Patrick Corbin, and that that was their bullpen. And why were they able to do that? Because they had days off. If you are the Rockets. And you get days off between all these playoff games and and in some cases multiple days off, the wear and tear factor that you would normally associate is not going to be there, right? Now, you may say, but these other teams are going to get to scout them and they're going to get to, you know, they're going to get to look at them. They're going to get to break them down and really lock in to your point, which is true. And so it does depend on matchups and things like that. But again, if they play, say, Utah, Utah's not taking – they're not going to downsize. They're not taking Gobert out of the game. What's the chance that if you put Robert Covington or P.J. Tucker on Rudy Gobert, is Utah really going to not have the ball in Donovan Mitchell's hands and feed Rudy Gobert in the post 15, 20, 25 times in a game? I really don't think they're going to do that. Something that doesn't get discussed. And, um, you know, we're going to talk to, to Bo about the analytics community. I think – not enough attention is paid to it's not just the way James Harden plays. I'm not convinced that he's making people feel good about how he plays. Mm. Right. I think because I think you can be ball dominant if you somehow make your teammates feel like they're a part of what you what what is happening, you know, with the team and in the game, and they can be fine with it. Mm-hmm. Um I you know, and I think the prime example of this, ironically, is Steve Nash is that, yeah, he had the ball all the time in Phoenix, but he was such a great leader, and he was so good at um, just making guys feel like they were a part of what was going on. I think that's a big part of this. I remember some study came out where it was like, it was revealed that, like, I think the amount of touching that goes on on a team is like some indicator of chemistry, like actual Mm. physical touch. Sure. Like, from a handshake to a pat on the back to whatever. Mm. And Mm -hmm. Steve Nash was by far the touchiest guy in the NBA. Oh, no, yeah. no, that, that matters, man. That matters. No, that, and I that, don't know that James Harden does those kinds of things. And that's like, when you're doing something this hyper-specialized, you got to have everybody buy in. Uh, the way the Rockets play, I think you got to get guys to buy in. The guys that oh, sure. aren't Harden, that aren't Westbrook, and the guys who are going to, they're going to help you win on the margins. And I don't know that Harden is the person to do that. Well, it's hard. It's always hard with a ball-dominant player, whether it's Jordan or Iverson or anybody that pounds. You do spend a lot of time waiting, and it's difficult for basketball players to stand and wait. That's not what they're – that's not what they've been trained to do. It's it's difficult. They do have a couple of guys, I think in P.J. Tucker and in Covington now, that are really, I think, fine with it. I don't think that either one of them is tripping like, I need to get 25 shots a game. Yeah. And I think Westbrook is invested. Westbrook – has a, a you know incentive to be invested in this succeeding because it'll be a referendum on him if it doesn't work, right? They'll say, see, we knew those two guys couldn't get along. And, you know, just it's always going to be hard to play uh, for the Rockets and play in a system where one guy makes all the decisions about who gets the ball or who doesn't get the ball and shoots it as much as he does. And nobody is, I don't think anybody's tripping off of the fact that he's shooting a lot. It's just that it's difficult to play effectively 
when you don't touch the ball as much as you're used to in other systems. It's difficult. It's just going to be a completely different style than anything teams are used to playing against. Is going to bode in their favor. And like I said, so far, the, 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 the four games, or at least the two games that I was able to watch up close, the effort level has been there. The yep. commitment to, like, like, the Laker game, these guys were flying around on help defense and, you know, fronting Anthony Davis and yep. just all of those little things that you have to do when you're playing a specific type of style. Um, They were committed Friday night against the Lakers. And part of it is, like, everybody who comes into Staples, it's, like, almost a Super Bowl for them. Mm-hmm. And they want to show out and they want to beat the Lakers. And the Lakers are one of the best teams in the league. So it's, like, it's a marquee matchup for anybody. So I think that's part of it. But I think there's legitimate buying of just, like, all right, guys, this is the team we have. Um, our, our, the, the, our, 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 man, our GM has basically said, look, this is the style of ball that I believe in. So therefore, if you in this rotation is because everybody around here believes in your ability to effectively play this type of ball. Um, and I think they've been en- energized by that. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, there's a certain F you factor to this. I, and then that can 100%. be motivating. Sure. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, we'll show them, we'll show people we can do this and people and they buy, and there's a buy in there. So I think, Again, I think there's a chance this could work. Now, the problem is I just think that randomly because, you know, again, if you're talking about advanced numbers and all that sort of thing, you know, if three is greater than two, then 290 pounds is greater than 220 pounds. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just more force uh, associated with that. And at some point, and again, I don't think it's going to be anything that anyone does deliberately. I just think at some point that is going to show itself. A guy falls on another guy. You know what I mean? It's going to be something – Random like that, where the simple physics of a bigger man engaging with a smaller man leads to the smaller man getting injured in some way. They have no margin for error if one of their key guys gets hurt. If it, if it, whether it's Harden or Westbrook or Tucker or Covington, they have to all play. They have to all play, and they have to all play 30, 35 minutes at least a game for them to have a chance. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. We'll also see. Uh, what happens with our man, Bomani Jones, who will be joining us in just a minute on Hoops Adjacent. Let's bring D.A. into the conversation here. Welcome to Hoops. Comma is make America what it ought to be. I turned it on and I heard Shaq with the barbs and just like the bolts and his braggadocious. I was transported right back into it. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I think I rap better than Shaq. With David, David Aldridge. Oh, he's totally playing. Yes. <laughs> Michael was not your friend. So the Chicago and Detroit stuff, that was real. That was real. I mean, God forbid we don't have scholarship monies and can't pay for the charters for the water polo in Iowa. Welcome to Hoop 5, 4, we have ignition. Stay mellow, my friends. The comma is, and welcome to another edition of Hoops and Jason. And I am thrilled to be joined by my friend Bomani Jones, who is a one-man media empire for the, for the worldwide. <laughs> but uh, Bo, the, the co-host of High Noon, the Right Time podcast, writes when he when the muse hits him. Uh, Bo, it's a pleasure having you on the show, man. Love talking hey. to you. Love love listening to you more than anything else. I appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you, man. I mean, we got so much to talk about. Um, but the thing I want the one the thing I wanted to ask you about first, because we're gonna talk about quarterbacks and all that stuff. I just love how you think. And I just wonder over the years as you've kind of developed your voice and developed your way of kind of approaching how to talk about, write about, think about sports, how your academic background may have helped you, may have hindered you or may have otherwise made you approach it in a way that's just different and unique from just about everybody else that does what you do? Yeah, so I think, like, one thing the academic background helped with and helped me learn was, like, I think that when you're young, you got a real tendency to take every bit of conventional wisdom and try to tear it apart and just assume that people are doing this just because they've done it before. And one thing the academic stuff does help you do is test out some of those things and realize that a lot of the stuff everybody does is for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like a lot of those things happen to be the case, but also to know some nonsense when you hear it and to recognize the value of calling out the nonsense when you hear it. Uh, on race stuff, it was helpful 
I, like I would not say this is a hindrance, but like there's a whole lot of stuff that when you talk about race in academic places that you can say and that if you say on television might get you fired, right? Right, right, right. Not necessarily fired, but like I was talking about when Bill Roden wrote the $40 million slaves, people get so charged up about any reference to slavery. People do it in academia all the time. Like you talk it out and you figure it out. On this side, we're far more likely to just come up with a you can't talk about this line. And I guess I'm probably more inclined to get as close to the you can't talk about it line because I hadn't really been indoctrinated with an idea that you shouldn't be able to. It's problem solving. It's, it's the scientific method, really, right? Well, that's that to me, like really when people get to talking about this stuff, what can frustrate me is I think that people think that just because sports is fun that they don't have to approach with any sort of rigor, right? And a second question would give people a long way, not even like a third or fourth question. Just a second one. <laughs> just the one below what's on the top. It's amazing all the fun that you can find if you would just ask the second question. And people are allergic to second questions. Well, no, because you could be called out your name. You know what yeah. I mean? So you shouldn't mind that. If you're, if you're truly interested in having a discourse, if you're interested in the, in the intellectual advancement, you shouldn't mind that. That's what, that's what always kills me about people is that they seem to mind so badly that their idea or their thought process can be found wanting. And instead of saying, hey, man, I appreciate the fact that you, that you hit me to something I hadn't thought about, it's always, well, I got to tear down the guy that came at me with some knowledge that might be different than what I was thinking when I came into this discussion. Yeah, I feel like some of these people might need to date a journalist every now and then. Let me tell you something that happens when you date a journalist, boy. You get questions. Why is that? That's the question that you receive. And you know what? It's the question that you should always be able to answer. Why is that? If you can't answer why is that, you probably should be talking about something else. Like I saw a quote, uh, Dean Smith, uh, Matt Doherty, after Dean Smith died, said that he had called uh, Dean Smith to ask him about fouling went up by three, right? Like whether or not you should foul or whether you should give him the chance at taking the three-pointer. And Dean's answer to him, which he felt was a non-committal answer, was whatever answer you pick, it needs to be something that you can explain to the media and the fans. And on one mm. level, that seems like not an answer. But on the other oh. level, I feel like it's bearable for life, which is if you can't explain it, you probably should think about it a little bit more. And, you know, I, I, uh, I feel like Dan asks people this a lot, uh, especially people like, you know, you who've done a certain amount of academic stuff and you care about stuff that goes beyond whether or not James Harden dribbles the ball too much, right? Doing sports stuff feel like it's a trivial pursuit. Are you ever like sitting there like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I covering these dudes in, in tight pants tackling each other on a playground? The, the games themselves are trivial, but they're enjoyable and people enjoy them and they're like important in people's lives. And so the triviality kind of gets discounted by the fact that it's so serious to so many people. Like it'd be easy to just yeah. dismiss the idea that people really care about this stuff. But they do. And so I look at this as something that's fun. I mean, something I like doing. It's something that I can exercise my brain in the course of doing if I so choose to. So, like, I don't ever really think of it so much as trivial, especially considering all the overlap into, for lack of a better term, real world stuff that we wind up having. Like, what I don't want to do, though, is I'll never want to be at a place where I feel like I'm overanalyzing this stuff, like, just to demonstrate some level of intelligence or something like that. That's not what I want to do. But I mean, I, I, to this day, I realized I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I still really enjoy talking to people about sports. I guess if there are weightier pursuits out there, I can do those at another time. But like, I ain't gonna find somebody to pay me to do something that I enjoy probably more than I enjoy just talking to people about sports. But you never get like, you never be at a party and somebody figures out what you do or already know what you do. And they just want to bend your ear about the Steve Stout hiring? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got to stop going to those kind of places. Right? Like, I'm, real, I'm real careful about that. This is no lie. When I moved to Miami and I was like, okay, I got to try to figure out a barbershop to go to. I was like, no, I don't. It's time to come home right then and there because I did not want to have to go to somebody's barbershop and entertain the nonsensical conversation that would come as a result, right? Like that kind of thing can't happen. And I'll typically entertain it for a little while because, look, I get it, man. For them, they're like, this is my one chance to do this. What I don't understand is why when I see those people, they don't have better questions. Like, they'd be like, yo, I have to ask you this. What's Woody Page like? Damn, that's the thing you have to ask. <laughs> of all the things in the world that you feel you have this opportunity to add, this is the one. I'm always, after all these years, still fascinated by sports because sports is just people. It's just people. It's a group of people trying to figure out how to do something together. That's what the fascination is, is that how do you get a group of people to all see the same thing the same way? You know what I mean? And, and right. understand 
that it's it's in it's in the best interest of the group. Group dynamics as opposed to individual dynamics is the hardest thing to kind of get your arms around um, at any level. What I don't care what it is that you're doing. It could be playing basketball or it could be building a car, whatever it is. The group dynamic is the thing that people have the hardest time accepting because it doesn't get your individual shine on. You tend not to get compensated for it the way that people who kind of preen and make it about themselves do. And at the end of the day, you know, like there's a certain – what does this all mean factor, right? But it is fascinating because it still does. We see examples of it every year. It does happen. When you get a group of people to pull the oars in the same direction, at least for a little while, and you see some amazing things happen, whether it's on a court or on a, on a baseball diamond, whatever it is, you see it happen and you know it's happening because everybody is sacrificing. And then if you are inclined toward being a hater, you get to watch it all fall apart because that's that, just oh, yes. sort of what happened. Like Ethan Strauss's book, which I gave a read to, The Victory Machine, about yeah. how basically the Warriors and all this winning and nobody's happy as it was, <laughs> right? For the longest time, everybody wants to make sure the kids are good at something, and I ain't never seen no correlation between happiness and being good at something, right? But that also happens with us as sports. These are the elite people, and then we expect them to be happy in ways that are not in line with the actual human condition. Why? Because we broke, and we wish that we had some money. We think <laughs> we'd be happy if we got some money. And all these things layer on top of each other before we get into like the delicate sociology of race and everything else, and just the general economics of the whole thing. Like There's a level to this wherever you so choose to look, and that's before we get to the funny stuff. Right. I've tried to explain this to people and they look at you like you have three heads and it's very simple. Whether, you know, whether it's it's Jordan or Bird or Magic or Michael or Isaiah, they were all assholes. You know what I mean? Like they were miserable people to be around. And so why would you expect it to be fun, quote unquote, to win at a, at a heavy level? It's not fun because you push yourself to this ridiculous level by somebody that you really don't like being around, but they're so good at what they do. You have to stick around for the ride. And then you're pushed by usually some maniacal coach who's trying to save his ass. And and none of it's fun. Will Todd tells this story about talking to uh, Jordan near the third retirement, right? He's talking about walking away. And he says he's talking to him and he says something about Magic and Larry Bird and how they're happy and all this. And, Ma and Mike's thing was, don't you believe for a second that they're happy? Like, <laughs> and, and the story ends with Magic Johnson, the man who beat death, on the phone with Michael Jordan, trying to explain to him that he is happy without competition in basketball in his life. And Jordan just can't buy it. He did not conceive of this idea. So the man who was better at one thing than anybody I've ever seen was ever at the one thing that he was good at is a miserable, miserable man. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, and people will not, because it, it interferes with the hero worship and the hagiography and all that, that they must be great people on top of being incredible athletes. And it's the, it's the very thing that made them great. Athletes. It's what made Mozart Mozart. Mozart right. wasn't fun to be around, <laughs> okay? You know what right. I mean? And, 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 like, LeBron is interesting because he is probably of these people that we've listed, like, outside of, like, Magic Johnson, probably the easiest of those people to be around. But his brand, of Jerk, exists. It's just yes. not in a way that comes up in our stuff, right? Like, it's I think if you want to find out what a jerk people think LeBron is, ask him when they're sitting on that bus for 20 minutes waiting on him to show up. <laughs> it's passive-aggressive, totally. The thing that uh, we definitely wanted to get into was the quarterback issue. We're seeing this evolution before our eyes in terms of quarterbacking in the NFL and what the perception is of what it means to be a quote-unquote quarterback in this era. And, you know, your takes on these things are fascinating. Give me the 30,000-foot view of what you see in terms of this evolution in the NFL. I'm going to start with a thought. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to get back around to it, but it's something that just hit me, right? I got a buddy— who is a, an economics professor. I think he's at University of Texas at Arlington now, but he once made this point about playing quarterback to me where he's like, quarterback is the new violin. And he said this in 2005. And so, you know, this is where people are sending their kids to get all these private quarterback lessons and everything else. And it became a position that was kind of economically putting a specific set of people in place to do a very finite set of things because of what had been determined was what required to be an NFL quarterback, which is your standard pocket passer sort of stuff. But the truth is, in most places, in most schools, everywhere else, ain't but so many kids that can really afford to do that and are actually talented enough to do it. So what we saw in high schools and colleges all across America 
was a simplification of what offense was, right? And I think it makes sense because I've made this point all the time. There are 32 starting quarterback positions. How many good quarterbacks are there? Not anywhere near 32. What kind of system is built where nobody can do the job that's required to be done? Like, how much sense does that make? Something is fundamentally wrong and busted with your game. So what you started seeing at these high schools was they decided to simplify the offense up. Some of it involved coaches making calls from the sideline, but a lot of it went back to what football was at those levels about 50, 60 years ago, which is a lot of various forms of option-type football. This is the football that players have come up playing. As a result, we started seeing in colleges, these were the offenses that people were running. And now in the pros, you're also seeing that in a lot of ways, these are the offenses that people are going to run, in large part because these kids are not getting training running the offenses that the NFL used to teach. And it used to be, if you're going to be in the pros, this is a set of things that you have to do. And the pros finally had to look around and realize they're not giving us kids who are trained to do the stuff that we do. So now we have to go around to doing what they do. Okay, now let's say we make the football more simple. If you make that decision, then you know what kind of falls by the wayside as a result? Everything you ever told us about how goddamn hard it is to play football. Everything you ever told us about what kind of galaxy brain that you got to have to break down a defense and everything else. And what does it come down to ultimately? Your ability to hold your water and your physical talent and your ability to get stuff done on the field, right? We're going to make this for everybody or there ain't so many reads that you got to make. There ain't so many things that you got to do. We just need you to go out here, make good decisions in the moment and be talented. Once you, know you what make I- that decision, oh boy, a whole lot of those barriers that you claim to have for why black people couldn't play quarterback go out the window, right? Like we haven't actually reached a point with quarterbacks where what people think of black folks has changed. It's not like we see all these black quarterbacks on the field and all of a sudden people are like, wow, these black kids sure are smarter than they used to be. Glad they got up to the space of playing football. Nope. All the biases that ever existed before are really still in place, I would argue. But the offenses have gotten to a point where if you make the call that you have it, like if you have a really dynamic player, and I don't want to use Lamar Jackson as an example because he's the kind of so unique and so special. But if you've got a dynamic singular talent that can play quarterback, you can build an offense around him in the modern NFL and he can be successful similar to ways that we have seen guys be successful in college. The rules have changed in ways that allow that because people are afraid of hitting the quarterback because they're going to throw you out the league for that kind of stuff. Now you know what happens when we look up. This year was something that has not been discussed nearly enough, which is pro football outsiders got a catch-all statistic called DVOA. That is probably the best metric for offense. If I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure this is the case, but there are eight. there were eight starting quarterbacks in the NFL this year that were black. Top five offenses were all quarterback by black quarterbacks. So at once, they still only letting like the best of the best of the black quarterback compete. But at the same time, the results are here in a way where, and the competition is stiff in a way where you can't hate on the black quarterback in the way that you used to before. You're going to have to find some new terminology in order to do it. And I guess until the new terminology comes, people are getting hip to what's going on here. Well, Monty, I'm glad you brought up football outsiders, right? Because I think a lot of what has what's happening right now is, is about the statistical analytical revolution, which ironically is benefiting black quarterbacks. Yes. I just remember the first time that I, you know, I started paying attention to this stuff when analytics came to the NBA, where it was like, yo, guys should be shooting threes. And football is like, no, like, it's, it's nice when your quarterback can run, too. Like, yes. it's not a bad thing. Like, it's actually, like, really helpful. It's actually really stupid to discount the 700 or 800 yards that your quarterback got running that season. No, he really helped your team. Like, he really helped your offense move the ball. Like, there's quality to his play that if you're only doing, well, he only threw 13 or 14 touchdowns. Like, no, but he ran for eight, and he did this, and he moved the chains, and he kept your offense on the field. That's what actually sticks out to me is that it's the analytically sound thing to do, which I think is hilarious because of the way that, you know, we generally, and I say we, I mean black people in the media talk about analytics and how problematic it can sometimes be, right? Like, not just the people who espouse them, it's just... Some of the stuff that comes out of it can be so just like, all right, we might be doing a little bit too much here. But the analytics movement in the NFL has made it so that, yeah, having a black quarterback makes a lot of sense to a lot of people who are just like, yeah, no, like this stuff makes sense. You know, it's interesting because like the big problem that I have with the analytics community in basketball is often hearing the way they talk about basketball 
so often those dudes sound like they've never met a basketball player in their lives, right? right. Like, they, like there's a lack of understanding <laughs> of some of the human components that come from playing basketball and everything else. Like, for example, Ben Simmons has this the crazy high effective field goal percentage and all this stuff because 95% of the shots that he takes are within something like three feet or something right. within 10. Like, it's all, all crazy short. And they're like, yeah, but he's only taking shots he can make. But there's a human element that comes in for being like, yeah, man, but you can't just be passing up every shot, right? Like, the playoffs tend to throw a wrench in basketball analytics because what works for 82 doesn't necessarily work for seven. Like, I always look at that and I'm just like, yo, man, if you knew a little more about the dynamics of teams and just looking at how basketball works with your own eyes, you'd be in better shape. In football, I often feel like because so much of that stuff is just kind of like folksy axioms that people have, the analytics guys are almost better off that they are not immersed in football world because so much yeah. of that is kind of self-feeding. And it, I think it turns out better as a result because the first analytics darling I could think of from the football crowd as a quarterback was actually Tyrod Taylor. You could go and you could point out the shortcomings in Tyrod's game, but ignore the fact that Buffalo's running offense was so much better because they had him and the threat of him doing something. And it's so wild because the advent, like the Buddy Ryan thing in football, when Buddy Ryan was killing the game, what did he point out? It's a very simple thing, right? But people win Nobel Prizes off simplicity. It was that the defense always outnumbers the offense, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the quarterback or somebody having the ball or whatever. The defense is always going to have more people than the offense can block. Well, now that the quarterback has to be acknowledged as a bit of a threat and now he has to be accounted for, you may have more to block for, but the advantage is now mitigated because now there's one more person who's a threat that you have to account for. Forget analytics, man. That's just simple math. Now, that guy has to be able to throw the ball. Like That was the part that I do think that a lot of people had to really come to terms with is the idea of you do have to be able to play from the pocket in the NFL because the rules incentivize getting things done from that place, right? Making big plays in the passing game, you can only do it with so much on the ground. Like, these things can be done. But what I also think is happening, I think this is what's kind of helping a lot of the, a lot of black quarterbacks now is at every level of playing football, these guys are learning to throw the ball a lot more earlier than they did. It's kind of like with basketball with AAU, where, man, these cats play so much more basketball, so much younger now, that there's some things that they come in better at than anybody could have dreamed of. In football, man, you've been playing this seven-on-seven seven stuff since you're 12 years old, and you're Lamar Jackson. Yeah, you might have been out there doing all this running and everything else, but you got more experience passing the ball than Michael Vick did. I think Michael Vick, in his time at Virginia Tech, I can't remember if it – I think it's completed, I want to say, 300 passes in two years. Hmm. Like, that was it. Because right. that, that ain't what they asked them to do. Now these cats get asked to do it. Yeah. The kind of uh, corollary between the NFL and the NBA, it, to me, is interesting because I, I agree with you. I think the, the advanced numbers tend to benefit players on the field, whereas I think in basketball, it has really kind of changed the paradigm to the control of the game off the court. That's yes. where I have I, – I'm troubled by it, and I haven't been able to articulate it in the way that I want to yet. I'm still trying to figure that out, Bo. What it comes down to to me is this. I don't think that there is inherent prejudice amongst people that are involved in analytics. I don't know that I, – I can't look in a person's heart and say that. I don't believe that, that, that they believe that. I believe that they believe in their math, right? And yes. they believe that three three is greater than two. The, the trade-off to that is – when you encourage that kind of groupthink, you necessarily eliminate a whole strata of people who – it's not that they don't know three is greater than two. It's that their area of expertise is no longer valued. When you tell me that layups and threes are the only valuable shots, then you eliminate somebody who – is a great screen setter, for example. You really, I mean, you really do kind of legislate them out of the game. And, and this is not necessarily even race-based. Marcin Gartat was the best screen setter in the league for years. But the fact that he couldn't step out and shoot a three made him less valuable. It does tend to be that this tends to eliminate large, tall people from the game. <laughs> and the largest and tallest people in basketball tend to be African-American, right? You know what I'm saying? So even though you don't, think you're doing it, you are eliminating from the discourse, not even the job, just the discourse. You're eliminating this group of proud men that really were the backbone of this league for 40 years. And you basically told them your services are no longer necessary. Yeah. Like how crazy is it that Roy Hibbert, like Roy Hibbert was one of the most just gone. players. Just eliminated. Just done. 2014. Right. It was done three <laughs> yeah, years done. later. 
Done. Not even not playing. You're not in the league. You do nothing. You have nothing of value. He wasn't just a dude in the league. He was maybe the reason Indiana could go to the finals, right? Yeah. For his particular set of skills <laughs> that that kind of went away. Like what I what worries me about basketball analytics guys is. I just feel like they're removing all the humanity from what we're doing, right? Like the humanity of the games themselves and an aesthetic quality, the humanity and just the way that you evaluate, evaluate players. And the way that you look at players is basically just as a store of value in mm-hmm. one way or another, or just like reduced to a very, to a quantifiable set of skills. And that's not why we enjoy this stuff, right? Like it, it's a, it's a dedication to cold deficiency that I understand Except that I'm not in this for cold efficiency. Like, right, like, yeah. like, like, like that's that's that's, that's not it. And I guess you guys really want to win that way. Okay, it's cool, and this is how you've done everything your whole lives. Okay, that's what it is. But me personally, that's not what I'm in this for. And so when we get away, like the most efficient shots are layups, threes, and free throws. Yeah, we totally get that. But like when people used to knock Melo for his mid-range game. I was like, mm-hmm. have you ever looked up his percentages shooting those mid-range shots? He's really good at them. Exactly. He is a guy who should be shooting these. Not everybody should be shooting these, mm-hmm. but this is a guy that should give it a try. Like, you know who else is? Ben Simmons. He'd be so much better if he just gave it a try. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, the funny thing is about the analytics thing to me is like, <laughs> I, I don't know that there's any analytics in LeBron wanting to form a business empire in Los Angeles. Right. <laughs> Him and AD sharing representation, and therefore they have a team that's going to compete for a championship next year, right? Mm. Um, and some of the stuff that, like, some of the grand proclamations that come out of, and like, the most analytically, quote-unquote, impressive guys, which is just like, Oh well, if you lose more, <laughs> you get better draft picks. Yes, and that's how you get good players. It's like, that, like, uh, like that's not. It no, just has no soul, right? <laughs> like, th- there's a problem with the fact that that stuff doesn't have a soul. So think about this: when people talk about that, and in basketball, we use the Sixers as the obvious example. Because, in spite of the fact that we could talk about like the Minnesota Timberwolves being terrible for God knows how many years in a row, and right. still never figuring this out, the greatest stroke of luck that the Sixers had was that they did not win the lottery in 2014, mm-hmm. right? Correct. Because <laughs> if they win the lottery in 2014, they take Andrew they take, Wiggins. They, take they got lucky that they went down to third, and I give them the credit for having the courage to pull the trigger on MB. But He's if so they bad. had one of the top two picks in there, they'd probably either take Parker or Wiggins in that draft. Instead, they wind up with Embiid, and then Embiid can't play for a couple years. Okay, but who'd they take the next year? Jalil Okafor. Bad pick. You keep hearing people make the argument, well, they would have taken Porzingis, except y'all were so sorry and embarrassed that Porzingis didn't even want to show up and work out for your team. Now, whose fault is that? The following year, they won the lottery and they got Ben Simmons. And that part managed to work out, right? But Embiid, to me, is the superstar of the two of those guys. And they did not get Embiid because they were sorry. They got Embiid because they were lucky that they were so sorry, but did not get what should have been the reward for being so sorry. Like, the teams that have built themselves to be great, the Warriors, the Warriors did that with a bunch of guys who were not high lottery picks. Look at the Bucks right now. Do the Bucks have a contributor worth discussing that was higher than, like, the seventh pick in the draft? No, they don't, right? So instead of these guys actually doing some work to develop talent and scout and figure this out in an era where the league is deeper than it's ever been, where two of the top five players were number 15 picks in the draft, and that's Kawhi and Giannis, instead mm-hmm. of putting in the grind to do that, nope. The numbers say it's a lot easier for us to just stake. And then these guys just lean back and say, hey, man, you know, and it's a simple logic and you understand it. But where is your grind? So now we look at Philly and I don't think Hinky's gone. We'll never know what kind of team Hinky would have ultimately built. But go look at that mismatching bunch of parts that they have. And that feels to me like what happens when people don't pay enough attention to some of the stuff that matters. And when you spend all these years where you don't have any of the bench guys from your process because you never plan to keep them. So you don't have any glue on your roster. Well, they, it, yeah, well, it comes back to this constant flipping, which is, again, it's the analytically correct thing to do. Keep flipping your assets until you get the right ones. But what does that do to the chemistry of a team? What does that do to a, to a guy that's busting his ass, who's the eighth guy, who knows that no matter how good I get, at some point I'm going to be traded because they, they, they that's how they do things here. They are going to keep flipping parts until they get the right third piece, and it's not going to be me. So, you know, you have this this kind of – I don't know this dance uh, between to you to your point the soul of forget basketball sports right I mean you know just just sports I mean 
the, 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 the log, I mean, there's logic in always going for, for it on fourth down, right? Because you probably make it more than you think, right? But there's trade-offs to those, to every type of decision you make on that. So if right. you decide that playing five out, zero in is just more efficient, it is. You're right. It is. Shooting 63s a game is more efficient. You score more points. But what do you do with people who go, you know what? I just don't like watching that. Right. You know That's what I mean? Right. Like, what do you say to them? You're I just shit out of luck. <laughs> I don't want to watch that. And again, I said it before. Some of these strategies are great for 82, yeah. but they don't work for seven. Right. Because one right. thing that happens in seven is and I get I, I am not a caveman about these matters, but this part of what happens is seven man, all that stuff the old folks say starts mattering, right? Like that toughness stuff starts mattering. The basic ability to get your own shot that matters. The level of pressure that you have that matters. Because look, those first two Warriors runs before Kevin Durant got there, hey man, those were not impressive postseason runs, especially <laughs> that first one. Like it was not. Everything that worked in the aggregate to win 67, we got to the playoffs, and everybody looked around and realized, y'all got one dude who can get his own shot. Memphis had him. Had him. Yep. Just, just didn't know they had him. You know what I mean? <laughs> they so, had him, and then I'm not going to lie, the, the the analytically sound thing of, of putting Bogut on, on Tony Allen kind of changed everything. They just started oh, yeah. no, four, no, it did, four, but you five. know what, though? <laughs> to me, that, but to me, that tapped into something that's actually more so conventional wisdom, which is, we might need to guard Tony Allen in over 82, but over seven, yeah. stay yeah. out there by yourself. Yeah, because yeah, if you miss two in a row in, mm -hmm. in, in, in a spot where, you know, you're either, especially when you're at home, and you miss two in a row, you're like the sixth best offensive guy on your team at that. Everybody in the building is like, why the hell did you shoot that shot just now? <laughs> and the next time you get it, you're going to be way more reticent to do that. Um, but, you know, and another thing, that I, that I find fascinating about. Because the Hinky thing just really irked me. I, sometimes I felt like I was just being a basketball, like, purist and a no, basketball, just conservative, no, where I was just like, dude, like, there's nothing smart about this. There's nothing genius about this. It's just a straight up, I should get to have unlimited cracks at potentially drafting the next LeBron or KD. Yes. Because... That's that's the logic. And by the way, it's the most self-serving logic as an executive that you could possibly have. Maury, one of his grand proclamations is like, all of our models and statistics tell us that you need to probably have two of the top 10 players in the league to win the championship. It's like, so what the hell are we doing here? But that's why I rock with Maury to a degree about this, right? One thing I'm with Maury on is that, I mean, I'm from Houston. I'm telling you this about that city. Your Astros did this, but I don't recommend it. You can't just get sorry in Houston. We will forget you. Like that, that ain't a city where the basketball team can bottom out to do it in the way that Hinky did. Like Maury always had to produce some form of winner, and that city lost in the history of the Rockets is always superstars, right? It's basically been 40 years of superstars in Houston, from Malone to Olajuwon. Steve Francis is not a superstar, but you get where I'm coming from. Yao Ming, Tracy McGrady, like you gotta have, you gotta have frontline stars. And he went and he made that work in that setup. With Hinky, I was with you. It was just always the checks in the mail. And he, right, and he made some good trades that maximized, yeah. like the Michael Carter-Williams trade was incredibly impressive yep. when you think about it. His right? trades were all good. This is what I resented about the people around the process. If you're gonna act like you're smarter than me, you damn well better be right. Right. Yes. <laughs> so all these, it, it, it informed, informed all these people who felt that they were some form of genius in some way because they're like, yeah, we're going to tank this out. This is really, really, really smart. And the cruelest thing about it to me was nobody that was there from those process years got to stick around except for Brett Brown, who has no business being the coach. <laughs> Yeah, Brett Brown. <laughs> Another thing that you notice, just look around the league. Like, just look at a Nick Nurse, where it's just like, it's taken him two years to establish, like, no, nah, I know what I'm doing. Right. Like, I really know what I'm doing. Like, night-to-night -night basis, my team looks like they know what they're doing. I don't know what the hell the Sixers are doing on a night, Yo, night but, but you know, the other part of the problem, and this is where we start talking about, like, no soul, no personality. How much of what's going on with the Sixers is a byproduct of them spending years not making any effort to win and then look at the way Joel Embiid handles stuff? Oh, yeah. He came up in an Nothing environment where winning didn't matter. The playoffs and the championship. And you have to also be right about the guy. You know, I always tell people, it's not It's not about where you, to your point, Bo, it's not about where you draft. It's who you draft, right? Like, you could take these two guys, Giannis and Joel Embiid, and put them side by side the year they came out in the draft. And you said, well, which one of those guys would you rather take? I mean, I'm guessing, 
I'm guessing conservatively, 90% of the people would say, hey, you got to take MB, big man, agile, you know, yep. mobile, all that sort of thing. And they were all wrong, right? You know what I mean? So right. like clearly they're all wrong in hindsight. So all those things, I test all those things. I'm not saying I tests are infallible. I'm saying that the process of doing that, of lending yourself to, we're just going to take the best guy that we see on the board in a given year and hope we're right. Well, you better be right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you better yeah. be right. You know? Look okay, at, no let me tell you who I would hire to run my scouting operation. Whoever in San Antonio saw Kawhi Leonard <laughs> at San Diego State. He was drafted about 15, and that was reasonable. He was a banger at San Diego State. He was a double-double guy. Now he's like Jordan. Yeah. And I don't even know if the guy who's picked him at first saw that, right? Like Giannis is a guy where I feel like somebody looked up and was like, look, we get this guy three square meals a day for the first time in his life and just you watch what happens. With Kawhi, I was like, yeah, he'll be a pretty good NBA player. Mm-hmm. Who saw this? Oh, that was impossible. And even Popovich is, has enough humility to be like, look, man, if we, we, we thought highly enough of him to give away George Hill, who was one of our favorite guys. And we had developed George Hill, and we was like, you know what? We think highly enough of the Leonard kid that we could get rid of George Hill to move up for this pick and and all of that. But even Popovich is like, come on. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) You know, and you can't even do that. But, Bo, before we get you out of here, I wanted to get you talk about the, the NFL and how they go about marketing the league in the future. Because as you did mention, Per football outsiders numbers, like the top five offenses were helmed by black quarterbacks this year. I think both all three of us on this call would agree that Mahomes and Russell Wilson are the two best quarterbacks in the NFL right now. And Lamar Jackson won the MVP. It's a different paradigm now. And as you mentioned, the, the league generally, when they did choose to market the individuals, it was all the white quarterbacks. And now it's, it's, it's quarterbacks and coaches which is, you know, the two whitest positions in the whole sport, right? Like, what? Did, how are they going to market the league going forward with all Yo, these black guys? Let, let's, let's think about this and step out, right? Matthew Stafford, who I think is good, right? I don't think he's great. I thought he was really good this last season before he got hurt. But Stafford is good. And by the way, they're worried injuries may be running him out the league. So keep this in mind in this discussion. But Matt Stafford was drafted number one overall in 2009. Try to name the best quarterback who is currently in the NFL and also white, who was drafted in the last 10 years. Because yeah. we ain't got Andrew Luck no more. You start to get into the Matt Ryans. Matt Ryans been in the league for 12 years. After that, here's who you're getting. Kirk Cousins. You're Andy Dalton. Jimmy Garoppolo. You're getting Derek Carr. Andy Dalton, maybe? Dalton. Right, right, but but, think, but yeah. think about what I'm saying here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. It's a legitimate name to bring up in this discussion. They, right. There's not a good white quarterback from the last 10 years who's currently in the NFL. The NFL has been selling us Drew Brees and Tom Brady, and they gave us Tom. They Peyton Manning was all as they could. Then they switched out Eli Manning, hoping we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But Rogers. they've been selling. Yeah, Rogers. They've been. And think about this, man. Rogers got drafted 15 years ago. They've been selling us these same quarterbacks year after year after year, and they're about to all be gone. Ben Roethlisberger, I think he's probably done. Phillip Rivers, even if he ain't in L.A., I think he's probably done. Tom Brady, about to be out of here. Drew Brees, about to be out of here. We can run Aaron Rodgers. We don't know how long that's going to last, and he's slipping. Who are they going to sell now if those aren't the guys to sell? Are they prepared to sell Pat Mahomes in the way that they have sold Peyton Manning? I think they're prepared to sell Pat Mahomes, and I think Pat Mahomes actually comes from the school of Brady and Manning. And yeah, he's Q- still black. He's still black. And all still that black. stuff. He's still black. But, he's still but black. I'm more sad. I'm just telling you, he's still, he's still, no, this is all I'm saying. There's a reason why the NBA is the black league and the NFL is not. And it's right. not because the NFL isn't black. It's because the NFL has white dudes that it can put up front and sell on the marquee, right? And, and, you know, they start, they, now? they start off Monday Night Football with Hank Williams. And I'm just like, what is going on? Yeah, that's what <laughs> like I'm saying. Harry like, Underwood. And yeah. he's like, now nah, we're going to get J. Cole and Kendrick Lamar. Right, <laughs> right. Where are the white players for the NFL to sell? Where are they? They're hoping that it's Joe Burrow. That's what they're hoping. Get ready. Every white quarterback that comes out here, man, you about to hear a whole different level of push behind them because – I'm not saying that the white quarterback is becoming an endangered species because that feels dramatic. But I am saying 
He ain't gave us one to hold on to in quite a while. Andrew Luck, they probably called him every day like, dog, are you sure? <laughs> you, you, you don't want to come back? And what happens if the NFL winds up being majority black quarterback? Marquee black quarterbacks, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Are we going to get to the point where we can just have some Rudy Pooh brothers out here playing? Because that don't really happen so much, right? Like, are we going to be at a point like Tyrod Taylor is probably like a median level starting NFL quarterback who will never be named anybody's starter ever again, even though we got the Buffalo Bills to the playoffs. Right. Never going to happen again. Bridgewater, same thing. Nobody's coming for him. Nick Foles got $50 million last year. $50 million last year. And nobody coming for Teddy. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. Bo, we could talk to you for hours, bro. And we need to do this again. You you are uh, – it's it's a cliche to say breath of fresh air, man, but I just – I just – I just love I just love listening to you and Pablo talk, man. I just love the the discourse is 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 top notch. The thought process is top notch. And I hope people appreciate what y'all are bringing to the table every day. I still love the idea that David Aldridge to call me to be on his podcast. This remains a big deal for me. <laughs> Kip, man, I, I just we all do this. You look at you look at your man on the other side of the street, holding this side of the street down. You just give him the nod, like I see you, bro. I got you. I see you. <laughs> hey, look, man, I got, and, but I appreciate it for you even more as you were around for me as what I call my awkward period, which is when I knew what the deal was with me, but everybody else was trying to figure out who the fuck I thought I was. And you rolled <laughs> through it, and I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, man. Best of luck to you, man. Safe travels, man. Sounds good, man. You take it easy. Thank you, boy. All right, out. Wise, I could talk. Like I said, I could talk to Bo for hours. I just love, I just love watching the brother think. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, he's the best. My favorite thing about him is like people seem to take things the wrong way when you come off as cocksure and self-assured and all of mm-hmm. that stuff. But I know for a fact he thinks a long time about the stuff that he's saying. He's never shooting off the hip, and so you can agree or disagree with whatever Bo is on, mm-hmm. but at least. You can have the confidence and the assured, um, be assured that he didn't just spout this off. He actually put some thought to it. Exactly. Which I always appreciate because a lot of times I'm looking at content and from not just the sports media, political media, where I'm like, did you actually sit and think about that? Right, right. <laughs> like, no, you didn't put any intellectual exactly. rigor <laughs> into that. I'm sorry. And that's exactly. never the case with both. Exactly. Well, I hope that uh, the people that listen to this podcast realize that we do put some thought into this <laughs> and hope you continue listening. Please subscribe if you can. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on all different types of uh, platforms, including the back-to-back podcast network here at The Athletic. So uh, if you do uh, subscribe, tell a friend and leave a review. And please, if it's a good review, we want to hear about it. If it's a bad review, keep it to yourself. So we'll be uh, back next week with another episode of Hoops Adjacent. See you.